Welcome to The Gamble and the Glory, where we hear founders tell the story of growing their companies to become industry leaders within the sports betting, fantasy, and iGaming industry. The Gamble and the Glory is presented by Segev LLP, a full solutions law firm purpose-built for the gaming and betting industry. With decades of experience and a truly global reach, Segev LLP is your go-to expert for legal solutions for all challenges commonly faced by companies from every industry vertical, including payments, blockchain, esports, affiliates, data, and more. If you need help with private equity funding, public markets financing, licensing, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, commercial deals, or other business needs, this is your team and it's what they do. Whether you're just getting started or have already scaled to become a stalwart of the industry, discover how Segev LLP can add value to your business and help you achieve your goals. Learn more at www.segev.ca. We are back and rolling with episode three of The Gamble and the Glory, where we talk to founders of companies in the real money gaming space that have crossed the chasm to become industry leaders. Today's guest is as experienced as they come, having co-founded his company, Sightline Payments, in 2009, and still leads it as CEO today in 2023. Of course, I'm talking about Omar Sitar. And Omar, I'm super pumped to have you join the podcast. You're Las Vegas-based, but I know you also spend a lot of time in the Vancouver area, which is where you are today. And Incidentally, you're taking this call from the GeoComply offices in downtown Vancouver. Of course, episode one of this series featured GeoComply co-founder David Briggs. So quick plug for that episode for those that haven't checked it out yet. But first and foremost, really want to welcome you to the pod. How are things going on your end today? You know, good. I'll give my own plug to David Briggs. I can tell you, to me, David is one of the smartest people in the U.S. casino business. And if you haven't heard the podcast, you should. Because when I want advice, the person that I call is David. And any words of wisdom you can ever glean from David, I don't know how you even got him on the first podcast. That's amazing for any entrepreneur out there. And David is extremely generous with his time. So you should, t- you should use that. Yeah. And I guess to continue with the thread with GeoComply for a moment here, I've been to two events this year that you also attended, which of course was GeoComply's Challenger Series events. They're fantastic events and anybody that gets the chance to attend them in the future most certainly should. But at those events, Omer, you contributed to some of the discussions there. And I was in the audience and was very compelled by a lot of what you shared at those. So excited to widen the aperture and and give a wider audience some of your insights today from your years of experience starting and building Sightline. Just to maybe warm us up and get us started, though, can you give us a quick version of the Omer Sitar origin story? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, it, I'll share something with you first. And I think, Jesse, you know this, you know, entrepreneurs tell origin stories in hindsight in a completely different way than how things actually happen. I'm a firm believer in that. You know, we create these great myths about how we had all the strategy and we knew what we were doing and how things were going to play out. And we knew all the angles. It's just not true. You know, it's in 50% of probably everything that happens is generally out of your control. And the other 50% is the hard work, the grit, the perseverance, uh, knowing and understanding your business, your product, and pivoting if needed. So, you know, from an origin standpoint, I can tell you, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had many, many ideas. I could probably share 20 ideas, and some of them were way ahead of their time. Some are things that people do today that had nothing to do with gambling or gaming. You know, I ended up fortuitously in Vegas for what was going to be six months in 2005 and never left. Got involved in payments, got involved in gaming. I'm also a very big believer in this for any entrepreneur out there. Have focus. You know, once you start doing something, learn it and really deep dive into it. So, you know, and we'll talk a lot about that. But the origin is, you know, I I got an opportunity when I was 25 years old 
to be in payments and in gaming. And the reason I mentioned the focus piece, Jesse, is because, you know, listen, it's it, no one grows up saying, uh, hey, I want to be in payments. Uh, you know, no one grows up saying, I want to learn about slot machines or table games, or uh, let me understand the history of Visa and MasterCard. Uh, where did the credit card, you know, come from? Why do we have chips in our cards today? What is the Apple Pay wallet? But the more you do something, the more you appreciate it, the more you learn it, the more you love it, and the better you get at it. And the better you get at something, the more you want to do it. So I was for, it was fortuitous. I got an opportunity. I took it and I've stuck with it since I'm 45 now. Uh, and I started in payments and gaming when I was 25. So, you know, I really stuck with it and I would encourage everyone to do the same and don't move too often. It's tempting to move, but the grass is often not greener on the other side. Well, especially for entrepreneurs, I'm sure you can relate, Omer, is like, you know, there's a shiny object syndrome and the temptation to find the next greatest thing. Of course, you know, there's what were Web3 and blockchain experts last year or AI experts this year, and who knows what they'll be next year. But to your point around focus, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I, I, I couldn't agree more, right? Everyone wanted to have a board aid and, you know, what's an NFT? How does it fit in? And it's, it's a mistake, right? I mean, the idea of saying, I'm going to catch some trend and I'm going to ride this trend, you know, the odds of that, it's not that it doesn't happen. And it's like anything else. You read a hero story of, you know, the one person who pulled it off and it's so tempting to say, well, you know, they tried this and it worked and now I could do the same. And the odds of that are almost nil. And I mean, the odds of that, are, you know, of that happening, of perfectly timing something. So, you know, the focus of staying and, you know, and part of this focus is learning the history of where things come from. You know, I alluded to this right now on Visa and MasterCard. If you're in the payments business, you should know why Visa and MasterCard exist. You should know who was the first, who created the credit card. It's a really fun story, but you, you know, if you're in the business, you should know why there's a mag stripe on the back of a credit card and where that mag stripe came from and what is the problem they were trying to solve. And, you know, really know about the history of where your industry came from. To me, money in general is interesting, right? You can track down money for 10,000 years and study the history of money, how commerce got created where it came from, that leads you to a whole other line of thinking. Where did joint stock companies come from? What are the first loans that were made? And uh, you know, why were the Italians good at it? So if you think about it in a historical context, both in recent and a long-term you know, context, it doesn't mean that you are a better predictor of the future necessarily, but the odds of predicting the future do improve. All right? So if you ask me you know, what payments looks like over the next two, three, five, seven years, in general, and then specifically in the gaming or gambling industry, I could make some predictions around that based on the history and the knowledge. So, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you know, dive deep in, uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't know where it originates from, where they talk about, you know, kind of the um, spend 10,000 hours or something. I can tell you 10,000 hours is not enough. You know, spend 50,000 hours and spend a lifetime. And only then will you be potentially maybe an expert. And so, you know, like I said, there's another piece as well. I kind of you know alluded to this in the origin part. I got an opportunity when I was very young. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how great your idea is, how hard you work. And at some point, sometime you need to get some kind of a break. And getting that break is, you know, sometimes a little bit in your control, but often it is not. But when you see a break, you got to take it. No matter what you do, I've been lucky. Like I said, I've, I think I've had two or three breaks, but you got to, when you get that break and you got to dive in because mostly, most of the time when you're doing things and trying to build a business and things are foggy, things are confusing and things that you're, you're not entirely sure what is the best direction, but when kind of that fog clears and you got to be ready to go, you got to, that is when you got to run as fast as possible because the fog is going to close back in, be bold, have focus and 
fingers crossed, any entrepreneurs out there, you'll get your breaks. And do your homework, right? There, there's the lesson. I feel like we could end this. I feel like we could end this episode now, Omer, and, and you've already provided enough value here to let us walk away confidently. But no, we, we got more to unpack here. So let's just continue a, a little bit around sightline itself. And we're not going to make this a sightline conversation specifically, but I think the context is important. And look, to me, payments is one of like the least understood domains. And you know, for myself with my own experience working for operators previously, I can understand the payments domain is incredibly complex. So. I guess just to contextualize with the rest of what we're going to talk about today, it'd be really helpful if you could just briefly introduce Sightline, talk a little bit about what it does and kind of where it fits into the overall ecosystem. Yeah. So I'll tell you about Sightline and I'll actually explain payments. So payments likes to make things confusing for lots of people. And it is in fact, and I had some early people who taught me this when I originally got involved. It's actually a very simple business, right? So if you think about where your money is. And so the first thing, you have a job, you collect a paycheck, and it is a fundamental core concept that every person wants their money to be safe and secure. Right? Now, you might believe that money is safest underneath my mattress, and, but the vast majority of the world believes, whether you like banks or not, that my money is safest in a bank. And we want people to believe that and know that. Governments spend a lot of time and effort around the world, certainly in America and in every country in the world. And so let's assume that most people either deposit their money in a bank or have a desire to have a bank account. I, I mean, unless you're, you know, shady and, you know, you're money laundering and even then you want to be in a bank. I mean, money launderers spend a lot of time and effort figuring out how to put their money in a bank and make it clean. You have a job, you get a paycheck, you deposit your money in a bank because you want it to be safe and secure. Well, what do you want to do with the money? There's only really two things that people are interested in doing with their money. First, you invest it. Second, you spend it. There's two things. There's really nothing else you can do with it. So then the question becomes, so investing is investing. You're putting it away and whatever your investment philosophy is, you're putting that money away. The thing that you want to do is you want to spend your money. And so how do you want to spend your money? When do you want to spend your money? Here's what the consumer cares about. The consumer cares, I want access to my money at any time, anywhere, and now also anyhow. So what that all that means is I want to be able to go for dinner right now with Jesse. I want to have a cup of coffee later. Later on tonight, I'm going to watch a movie. And then later on after that, I'm going to order something on Amazon online. I just want access to my money in any form factor I want, whenever I want. What does the merchant care about? So you bought something from Amazon, you watched a movie, you went to AMC to watch a movie, paid some money to Amazon, and you went for dinner and got a cup of coffee. And the merchant cares that they get paid, right? They've sold you a good, they get paid. So if you think about that movement of money, I get money, I put it in a bank, money moves from a bank to a merchant. That is basically all payments is. So there's two sides of that coin. And, and the two sides that you need to think about are actually also quite straightforward. And there's issuing and there's acquiring. Here's what that means. You'll hear those terms a lot in payments. And when you walk into a bank, and since I live in America, but I, I bank with Citibank, I go to Citibank and I open an account. I deposit my money in Citibank. And when I deposit my money in Citibank and Citibank becomes the issuer of that account for me, they created a checking account for me. And, and in order to access my money, what they did is they gave me a debit card. That debit card is branded either Visa or MasterCard, and that allows me to access my money from Citibank. Now, when I take that debit card and I want to go buy a hammer at Home Depot, so I walk into Home Depot, I swipe that card. And what it, well, now is the other side of the coin. There's an acquirer, and what the acquirer is actually physically acquiring my card information at the point of sale terminal at Home Depot. They're sending it to MasterCard. MasterCard knows that that, uh, that transaction has to go to Citibank. And Citibank looks up my information, says, yes, Omar has $20, go ahead and authorize it. And that's it. That's all payment says. There's one other rule that you should remember in general for payments, interchange. 
So there's a lot of confusion about what interchange is. There's actually two rules for interchange that you should remember. Interchange always moves in one direction. Basically, the merchant always pays. it. So the merchant, in this case, Home Depot, is paying interchange and to the bank. Now, yes, MasterCard is keeping some in the middle and there's other you know, parties that keep it in the middle. But basically, interchange goes from the merchant to the bank. So if you're a gambling operator, that's what you're doing in your cost of payments. And, and what a lot of folks don't realize is, especially in gaming, 90% plus of your cost of payments is actually interchange. So when you're negotiating your agreement with a payment processor, and what you're negotiating for is basically like just the 10%. 90% of it is going to the bank and the bank is making the vast majority of the money over here. And Visa or MasterCard are the network that are effectuating that transaction between you, the merchant, and the bank. And only other rules to remember, if you're doing an ATM transaction, which I know most folks over here are not going to care about, interchange flows the other way. So you know, we don't have to talk about that. Like most things in life, you can really simplify if you follow the train of thought. So all you have to do is follow the train of money. And someone comes to your gambling site, they want to pay, and you're going to push money out. Uh, you're going to collect their money from a bank, and you're going to pay for collecting that money. Everything else is basically just noise. And payments does get difficult and complicated for a lot of operators. And obviously not going to name any names, was on with someone yesterday, and they made a lot of mistakes in their payments journey. And that can cost you a lot of money. The one thing I will emphasize, and we can talk more about this as well, whatever you think you want to do to control fraud on the payment side, do more. If you think you're going to do one, do two. If you think you're going to do two, do four. And yes, it's painful. Yes, it might be hard to get it right. And the tools can be expensive, but the cost of not doing that is existential. You might not exist. And we've seen that repeatedly. And unfortunately, this company made some decisions that were not the best decisions. And payment should have its own risk and compliance. It can run under, you should have a payments group that does that, or a payments person that does that, or find a third party that is very knowledgeable. And like most things of life, if someone shows up and says, hey, I got a deal for you, make sure the deal is not, hey, I got a deal for you and I'm flipping open my jacket for you. So pay a lot of attention to that. But payments is not as complicated as you might think. Well, despite you saying it's not complicated, I'm sure there's a few people listening right now that are trying to map yeah. out everything you've just dropped on them. But I guess with that backdrop, Omer, like be helpful to, again, contextualize what Sightline's role is within the ecosystem. Yeah. So you sort of mapped out the payments landscape there. Like what is it Sightline is doing in market right now that's adding value to, you know, your customers and the overall ecosystem? Yeah. So what I mentioned over here and the, and the preview here was, it was what I think was important. So what Visa and MasterCard do is they move money in one direction. Visa and MasterCard move money from a bank to a merchant. The only time you can send money back through the networks, and we're not going to talk about OCT right now, and or Visa Direct or MasterCard said, but the, the way they design is unidirectional networks. So again, in that Home Depot example, when I walk in, I bought a hammer. If I don't want the hammer, I can return the hammer and I can get my money back. Well, gambling doesn't work that way. I deposit $1,000 and now I gamble and now maybe I get lucky and I have 1500 and I want to cash it out. So in order for money to move back and forth in a gambling environment, and what you really need is a bi-directional payments network, not exactly what Visa and MasterCard designed for. And that's what Sightline did. Because we were in the gambling industry, the largest dispenser of cash in the gambling industry in the world, and it's still a publicly traded company. We dispense tens of billions of dollars a year. And in order for people to take the cash and go gamble with. So what happened is, you know, we used to see this where someone would go to take cash, you gamble when you're done, you want to take your chips, you want to cash them out, then you want to take the money, deposit it in the bank, then you come back again, take your cash again. And so this churn of money keeps taking place. So what Sightline effectively does is, it's not just about depositing your money, it's about the cash outs of your money. So if you deposit $1,000 into gaming, 
you as a customer, I didn't mention all the principles. What I mentioned about the safety and security of money was principle number one. What a customer wants is access to their money. Like I said, anytime, anyhow, anyway, customers want loyalty and customers care about price. There's four basic principles you should be thinking about. And, but the second principle there is a customer wants access to their money. So what Sightline does is Sightline creates a effectively a casino branded stored value account, which can be a checking account or other form of stored value. You've deposited your money and you as Jesse now want access to your money. It's Friday night. You want your $1,500. You hit cash out. Your $1,500 is available to you immediately. And we partner with MasterCard, Visa, Discover, all through the major networks in the U.S. And that allows you to cash out your money and spend it in the real world or go get cash in the real world. And then you're going to come back and gamble anyway. So we make that churn of money that takes place in both the brick and mortar and in the digital gaming industry a lot more efficient. And this churn of money and gambling is never going to go away because no customer ever won money and said, I don't want my money. When you win, you want your winnings. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, Somer. And today, again, 2023, Sightline is an absolute juggernaut. Um, just for context for folks listening that aren't aware, a couple of years ago, I think August 2021, uh, you put out a release. You had raised $200 plus million in a round that valued the company at over a billion dollars, which of course puts it in the rare air of unicorn status. I think there's something like, you know, something like 700 startups worldwide to, to reach that status as private companies. So it's a juggernaut today, but obviously it started somewhere. So I wanted to sort of go back to the beginning and if you can sort of get in the time machine and go back and, and think a little bit about the origins and the early days and like going from zero to one. And that's what I really want to sort of talk to you about and hear from you is like the zero to one story of Sightline and some of your recollections from that time and experiences as you reflect back before again, like the big name that it is today within the industry. Uh, so I appreciate that. I mean, zero to one is hard. Zero to one is, uh, and I can tell anyone who's out there, I worked out of my house for two years. I drove a car that had 280,000 miles on it. And I, I tell the story often. I, I got it from an aunt of mine in California who, who graciously sold it to me for $1,800. And I, I, I drive this car back from California to Vegas and the passenger side, uh, the driver's side window didn't close. It used to stay open about this much. And so the only way to close it would be to get out and hold the window from both sides and pull it up. And the car worked fine. The problem was, and in Vegas, obviously it's very hot in the summertime. So in the summertime, the air conditioning didn't work, but in the wintertime, the heat didn't work. And so basically in the summer, you drove the car in shorts and in the winter, you drove the car in like, you know, like it does get pretty cold in Vegas too. I ate almost the same food every single day for five days a week, probably for 18 months. And when we traveled around the country, no one really wanted what we were trying to do on both on the issuing and the acquiring side of payments and gaming. No one had ever done it before. For the most part, no one's still ever done it, in, at least in the U.S. market. And we would walk into these meetings. People would look at like we were insane. I'll give you an example. I was saying that, hey, we wanted to build a bidirectional payments network. So we had this epiphany early on that what we wanted to do, Visa and MasterCard are not the right partners. We needed another partner. Well, this is so early. The only bidirectional payments network really in the world was PayPal that had any scale at there's no Venmo, there's no Zelle, none of those networks exist. And we went to PayPal and we asked them if we could, you know, through a contact, we found a contact at PayPal, went to PayPal, asked them if we could license their network and they never returned our phone calls. And they said, basically go pound sign. What are you talking about? You want to take PayPal and integrate it into the slot machine? So we said, you know, I mean, we have no choice. We're just going to build it ourselves. How hard could it be to build a bidirectional network? Now the network is deployed uh, at almost 100% of the U.S. market. We're connected into 95% probably of all the slot devices in the U.S. But it was so early on, our network's called SPAN. So, you know, we were not very creative. It's S-P-A-N. We paid someone $200 to make the logo. 
And we needed to make it small and short so that it sounds like a visa. So you could put it in the back of a card. We designed this logo. Our first open loop partner was Discover. And we told Discover that we wanted to brand this logo alongside Discover's major network names uh, on the back of the card. I genuinely think Discover thought we're never going to make it. I don't even know how they permitted us to brand that on the back of the card, but they've been amazing partners. They, we've been partners with them since 2011. And our network is now branded alongside MasterCards and alongside Visas, who've also been great partners for us, both of them. And there's so many stories. And I'll share another one with you. We were trying to do a deal with a bank, and I'd been working on this for seven or eight months because you need a bank partner. And the CEO, we'd gotten to know each other a little bit. We were like on the final one yard line, but I just couldn't get him to sign the agreement. This was in Vegas. I went to his office, I don't know, call it a Tuesday or a Wednesday, probably went at 10 o'clock in the morning. He wasn't expecting me. And I was like, listen, you know, like the deal is done. It's all negotiated. Can you just sign it? He's like, I promise you, I'll have it signed it by the end of the day. You could pick it up tomorrow. So I said, okay. Now th at this time I have an iPhone, but I don't know, it's probably like iPhone two or iPhone three, right? And it's like, all right, I'm not going to leave this parking lot until I see like either he's going to call me and he said he signed the deal and because he said he's going to sign it and then I can pick it up tomorrow or I'm going to wait. I, I like, there's only one exit out of this building, right? And it's, and it's a pretty big building, right? It's a, so I parked my car kind of on the other side of the parking lot. I don't want to be facing because I don't want him to see him if he comes out. So I'm looking in my rear view mirror to see if he's going to come out or not. I can't remember how long I waited. I mean, I must have waited six or seven hours in my car. And, and you know, like I said, it's like an iPhone, maybe two or three. There's no, you're not surfing the internet. You know, you're not on TikTok. You're not hanging out. Like you're just sitting there. And I could not, I, you know, I was like, I can't read because if I read, I'm not going to be focused. I can't see. So I probably sat there for five, six, seven hours. Finally, maybe around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening, he comes out. And I jump out of my car and I run to his car. And he was so startled to see me. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I didn't leave. He's like, what do you mean you didn't leave? I was like, you told me you were going to call me. and You never did. And so then we went inside and then he signed the contract and he gave it to me. And like many stories, uh, stories with partners. We've had great partners over the years where we built the product. So we, our first iteration of our product, when we launched it in New Jersey, it basically had no, it, like no one knew digital was going to be a big deal, right? In 2000 and, you know, starting in 12 and then in 13, well, like, what's the big deal? Like everyone, you know, people, brick and mortar casinos is the big deal. If someone wants to, you know, gamble, they can play on a PC. We had this kid, he was probably 25 at that point, And they used to work for us and his name is Charlie and. Charlie stopped working for us for many years. And, you know, because Charlie was a young kid in the room, he said, you guys are insane. What do you mean you're launching a payments product that is not integrated into mobile? And he said, oh, it'll be fine. You know, it's like, it's no big deal. And Charlie was right. And we went back to the drawing board and we listened to Charlie. We had customers over the years who said, hey, the product you built works, but it's not good enough for it to work. If you want to gain share and you want to grow this business, then this is what you need to do. And we listened to those customers. And those customers are still good friends. Some of them are still in the industry. Others are not. And so we hustled, we stayed humble and you do the work every day. So yeah, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about stories. There's lots of stories. The first guy, I'll share one more with you. I think he runs the entire payment infrastructure for Malaysia. He left Discover a number of years ago. So before we got our first agreement done with Discover, I got introduced to Discover by someone else. We fly to Chicago together with Discover's base. Walking in this guy's office, he had no idea what this meeting was going to be about. Like he had like 10 minutes into it, he realized I had no idea what I was talking about. So he said, you know what? Forget it. Let's just go for dinner. And we did. And we became friends. And you should be humble if you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but you have a, you know, an end state vision. Ask for the help. And if it wasn't for him and a few other key people to discover, 
we would have never been in the business. They told us the bank partners to work with. This is part of the reason why I think you in the beginning meant the Challenger series from Geo. Uh, I love participating because it's confusing out there. If someone offers you advice and help, they don't necessarily want something or need something in return, right? Take the advice, take the help, take the guidance. You don't necessarily have to use it, but listen, and then go make your decisions. So I met a lot of people like that along the way who helped us, guided us. And, you know, we were, like I said, very fortunate. And I'll say something on the fundraising side and on the investor side around that as well. Take your time, be patient. Patience will build trust and know your vision and where you want to get to. And you'll be surprised at how patient your investors are going to be with you. It's a hard fundraising environment right now. It was a lot easier a few years ago. In my opinion, it's likely going to remain hard. Don't get discouraged. Try again. Try for a smaller amount. You know, you mentioned the two. I mean, I'll tell you, it's a sight line in its entirety between since we were started and now, I have to do the exact math, we probably raised $450 million, give or take. But our, all our initial rounds are really small. And I mean, there's no shame in raising a million dollars or $2 million and raising rounds of money does not make you a good company. It, it is the product and the delivery and the execution and the trust your customer is going to have. If you never raise any money, you should be proud of that as well. If you raise a lot of money and deliver a good product, you should be proud of that. So it's not about how much money you raise. It's about the product. I can tell you the product that, that Sightline built that had, that worked in the industry very well for 10 years. It's not the right product for the next 10 years. We know this and we're very open with our customers about it. So your customers and your clients and your partners are going to be very appreciative if you say, hey, I service you very well and built a product that really serviced your needs. But we believe that next 10 years, the industry looks very different. And here's what we're going to build and deploy for the next 10 years. Once you start having those discussions with your clients and your partners, it completely changes the dynamic of your business. But it takes time to build that trust. You got to work on building that trust. Lots of threads I want to pull on there, Omer. I, I think this could be a multi-hour podcast, Lex Friedman style. I will resist the temptation to do that, though. Um, I'm actually mostly picturing you still sitting in your car there in that parking lot in that story you told. I'm not sure if that was your aunt's car that you had gotten, but I'm, I'm just visualizing that. Same car, yeah. It, so it's a 1995, you know, Mercedes, like I said, with a 280,000 miles on it. I actually literally gave it to, so across from my house, is a, there's like a workshop. And finally the car died and it stopped working. The guy paid me 200 bucks for it, but it was at my house. He's like, you have two options. Either you can deliver it to me and I'll give you $200 or I can come pick it up for free. I was like, just come and pick it up. And so, you know, I'll, I will forever be grateful to my aunt for giving me a car to drive around. That's awesome. So one of the themes I'm taking away from amongst a few themes here is credibility, right? You touched upon your example of going to PayPal back in the day that told you to pound sand or whatever. And through your persistence and grit and just sheer like number of reps, You've obviously established credibility at some point. And a lot of the conversations I have and with guests of my other podcasts who are all early stage entrepreneurs, many of which are new to the industry, you know, they're showing up at a lot of the industry conferences for the first time, trying to establish themselves, trying to build some credibility. So I just want to maybe have you speak to that a little bit. And, and maybe for some of those folks, like, what can you tell them about what they need to do to establish themselves as credible people, trustworthy, you mentioned, uh, you know, integrity, things like that. Like, what can you sort of, I guess, elaborate on as it relates to helping people establish credibility within a space like this? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. There's a few things there. So the number one, the most important thing, be curious, be curious about everything. It doesn't even matter if it pertains to your business. You'd never know through curiosity what you're going to learn from whom, when, at what time that then helps inform you. 
So think in a macro world, ask lots of questions, be very humble because you're not going to have, if you're an entrepreneur, you're starting at 23, 24, 25, and you're trying to walk into that room, the odds that you're going to get in are almost not. And it's going to take time for you to break into that room to speak to the right people. I'll share one thing with you. I will not share this person's name or this company's name. It's a large company. So it's a multi-billion dollar business. And the person who runs it uh, is extremely well-known and yeah, this was many years ago. I want to say, let's go back to maybe 2010. So we haven't even launched our first set of products. This company is based in Northern California. And I waited two days. I went to Northern California and I waited. I've, I've actually never told the story to anyone. I waited two days to meet this person or even not even this person meet any executive at their company. Like it didn't even matter if I was meeting a CEO. And two days, I basically camped outside their offices, stayed in a hotel across the street, would go every day could never get a meeting. And I was with this person four weeks ago, six weeks ago in Vegas. And they do a lot of business with us now. They want to do a lot more business. But this person doesn't know the story. She, she doesn't know that I waited two days to meet. They never got a meeting. And so, you know, between then and now, it's 12 years, 13 years. And not only do we a lot of, do a lot of business, but this person is extremely anxious to do more work with us. So, you know, be curious, but be humble. So when you don't get access to the rule, don't be humble about that. If you have a great idea, don't barge in to say, I've got a great idea. And, and with the final piece, don't take it personally. And you can never, ever take it personally. It's business. I never would hold a grudge to say, oh, I didn't get a meeting or I didn't get a conversation. For years and years, the executives that I work with now, I know for a fact, had no idea what my name was, had no idea what Sightline did, had no interest in engaging with us. So I'm still okay with that. If you're a company that doesn't want to do business with, if you don't know who Sightline is, if you don't want to do business with us, if you don't know who I am or who our executives are, that's okay. We're happy to be humble. We're going to be curious and we're going to introduce ourselves. So keep those things in mind. If you're new, curiosity is number one, be humble, but have thick skin. And if you have those three things and you're going to keep driving forward. Another theme I want to just quickly touch upon, which, which you've mentioned as well, is, is patience, right? And again, in a lot of the conversations I have, I don't know if it's just sort of the world we're living in now with like instant gratification and all of this, but there seems to be this sense of urgency with many younger entrepreneurs to kind of make it happen sooner than later. I mean, it really doesn't help that, you know, entrepreneurship is now romanticized and, you know, Twitter's cluttered with all of these, these guys that are crushing it and there's just sort of like hustle culture mentality. But, you know, looking at, at you and the Sightline story, I mean, you know, you've been at it for what, 13, 14, 15 years now. And there's something to be said that you said at the outset, like the commitment and the focus, but also the patience. And I feel like that is missing a little bit. And I guess I'm just curious to have you elaborate a little bit on having a high time preference and, and being willing to commit to a long term goal and having conviction around it, despite the short term ups and downs. Yeah, I, I, I haven't used this statement in a number of years, but I used to think about it this way and I still do. Given enough time, effort, and money, anyone can do anything. That's all it is. It's time, it's effort, and it's money. This is many years ago, I was in Turkey and then on a similar trip in Rome. And it occurred to me that business, if you think of business, like, I, I don't want to get political here, but like the church where you are building something for over an indefinite amount of time, right? If you're a religion, you never say, I'm going to end, right? There's no end date at uh, uh, it started at one time, presumably, and it's going to go on forever and ever. So think of your business the same way. You are a finite piece of your business. Your business that you're starting today, you're going to be dead. We're all going to die. But your business is going to live for, pick a crazy number, 10,000 years, right? If you're building a business that's going to last for 10,000 years or some iteration of it, 
you're going to build a foundation and then someone else is going to build on top of that. And then on top of that. So if you look at all human civilization, it's created that way. Cities are built on top of cities. And, and the reason I mentioned the church is because you take in a church and there was an older church there before, and then there was an older religious building. And maybe, maybe then you're going to a time before there was that religion and there was another building there. And so think about your business the same way. Your job is to build as much as you can for the finite amount of time that you are around to do that. It's a dual-sided coin. So firstly, slow down. Slow down and you can do many exercises for slowing down, but think about what you're doing and does it actually make sense? Can you explain it to yourself? I tell people this all the time. So I, firstly, I take a lot of naps. I take a nap if I can every day, sometimes twice a day. When I'm on a plane, unless I really, like if, if I'm texting you or emailing you from a plane, it's urgent. It is important. Mostly in a plane, I'm staring out the window, I'm reading a newspaper, maybe I'm reading a book, maybe I'm watching a movie. There is nothing so urgent that needs to be done right now to slow down and think about what you're doing. When you have clarity, you must push it, right? So you must have a sense of urgency. So let's just say in our world, we have four bank partners that we could potentially work with and we're evaluating those bank partners. Take your time and understand what it is that you're looking for. You know, thoroughly think about that. But once you know this is a partner and, and this is where the vision is going, you got to push every day, right? So there's this balance you need to find of focusing, of thinking, of slowing down and read a book, take the time to read a book. I mostly these days and for actually many years only read fiction, read long books. If you haven't read War and Peace, read it. And it doesn't matter if it takes you a year to read it, right? If you go in with the mentality, say the goal is not to finish War and Peace. The goal is to read War and Peace. So if you say, I'm going to pick up War and Peace and it takes me 18 months to read it. All right. It takes you 18 months to read it and then read the book again. Listen, there's a lot to be said for doing things quickly. I have been on both sides of this debate in my mind for years about the ability to stay connected all the time. I don't turn my phone off. I receive texts. I don't read all my emails. But here's what's important about that. If you have the ability to turn your phone off briefly, do that. And now there's pros and cons, right? The days in which we couldn't turn our phones off and we had to be in the office every day. Now we could be on a beach, right? We could be in the mountains. I'm in Vancouver right now. I'm, you know, I don't work in Vancouver. I work in Vegas, uh, but I can do this podcast from Vancouver, but try and find some, uh, you know, reasonable sense of balance. You'll also see other things when you're younger and you become very good at what you do. Older people are, are going to push back in certain ways and be respectful of that. And I didn't realize that when I was 25, 26, 27, uh, where I was pushing people twice my age. I would send emails at midnight. I would send text messages at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, is it really that urgent? Do you really have to email at two o'clock in the morning or send, you know, text messages? Older folks are going to push back and, you know, be respectful of that. And there are things that you can learn from them as well. I think there's a lot there of saying to slow down, but at the right time, have a sense of urgency. There's one more thing I want to share this because I just thought of it. And I also forget in kind of these discussions, read contracts. I would say if you're younger and you're newer, and I know contracts seem like they're not easy, take the time to actually read contracts and negotiate those contracts yourself, not just with your clients and for your product, but for the core of your business with your partners. Here's what's going to happen. I learned this early on from someone. The gentleman told me in every contract you're ever going to read, there's only two or three things that matter. Everything else is just noise. And so obviously my next question to him is, you know, what are the two or three things? And he says, well, that the whole point is that that's for you to figure out. You've got to learn what those two or three things are in every contract. And, and it is 
100% true. That is all that ever matters. So read contracts, take the time to read contracts, negotiate the difficult things, the limitations of liabilities, the, you know, the legally stuff that might blow over your head and you, and you might say, oh, I have no interest in this. Find an interest in that because the, all of that is going to be important. And once you have the skill set of knowing your product and negotiating those contracts, and you'll, you will see how good you become at your business. I'll take that one step further. Not only read the contract, but in many cases, get a contract. I've had many conversations recently with people that, you know, had deal go sideways because they didn't even have a contract in the first place. So prerequisite oh, yeah. to reading it is getting it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sign, sign the deal. Listen, and no matter what anyone says, even, even dry ink sometimes doesn't mean dry ink. Even sometimes money in the bank doesn't mean money in the bank. So even when you think you're done, you're still not done. We're getting down to about 10 minutes left here. And there's a few more things I want to zoom in on before our time is up today, Omer. One is coming back to the fundraising side of it. So look, we've established the fact that, that Sightline has been through a few successive rounds of fundraising over its years and 400 something million, just an eye-watering number for most people listening. But ignoring that aspect of it, tactical advice for people that are in this particular fundraising environment, which you mentioned is really challenging right now. I mean, historically, there's been other challenging times, but for newer entrepreneurs, Money's been plentiful since, you know, 2008, 2009, capital has been cheap, what have you. And, you know, for many, this is their first time kind of in, in difficult times. So I guess, you know, I'd, I'd love to kind of get your take as well for people that are out there now pounding the pavement, doing the roadshow, trying to close investors. What can you say to them? And then I guess the second part to the question as well is securing the bag is one aspect of it. You know, you get the money in the bank, great. But then there's the other side of it, right, which is the investor relations. And obviously, when you raise money from investors, those are new partners in your business, right? And I think that's lost on, on some entrepreneurs. And I'd love to get your take on, I guess, you know, what successful investor relations look like once you actually secure the bag and, and close the funds. Both of those are excellent questions. So firstly, if you can find strategics, find strategics. You know, find strategic investors. Uh, again, early on, our philosophy was as much strategic as possible. And then when you get to the round, you know, the rounds where you want to raise, you know, uh, either VC money or private equity money, find the most strategic that you possibly can. I know that's easier said than done. Before we did our first private equity transaction, never actually counted, but I would bet we met more than 90 firms. I mean, we probably spent 14 months working on it, 15 months, right? I mean, it was dozens and dozens of first meetings and second meetings, did them in Chicago, New York, LA, San Francisco, all kinds of firms. You'll also start, the more firms you meet, first of all, you'll get better at your pitch. That's just human nature. You'll get better at your pitch. Some of the folks that you're going to meet are going to be kind of assholes, but mostly people are going to be helpful. They're going to be trying to be helpful and take their advice. You know, you'll also realize the kind of investor that you want and you like in your business. And because the second part of that is very critical. They really are because your investors are going to call you every day, every week, every month, all the time. We have a number of billionaire investors in our business, either directly or through their private funds. And what we found is there's lots of personalities, but there's also a lot to learn from that. These are extremely smart people that have been through the cycles that you're mentioning, Jesse, right? They're not thinking about, hey, oh my, yes, it's a cycle and you got to be aware of that. But if you've been investing for 50 or 60 years, you've seen all the cycles and so try to make your pitch clear. If we were having this conversation two years ago, I would have said, go raise as much money as you can. The biggest round that you possibly can. Now I would say the opposite. I would say raise the smallest round possible that gets you to what you're trying to get to. Either creating your product, profitability, whatever it is that you're trying to get to, give the least amount of dilution possible because at this point, those VCs and private equity firms are going to squeeze you for every last ounce of equity. 
the really good days with the terms that are more favorable for you, where you can negotiate and you have 10 deals on the table or not. So be tight, be stingy, raise less money, but close the round. And because an idea without creating the product means nothing. And I mean, it's again, I, we got lucky in this quiz, just the way they're quizzing you about your business. It's okay for you to quiz them about their business and their personality. Like, don't feel intimidated by that. So they don't give you money. Who cares? Because if you're going to work, think, think of it in the same way. You're going to work with them for years to come. You don't want is someone who is not aligned with you on your values, your culture. So spend a lot of time with the folks before you take their money. Don't just take the first person's money. Yeah, due diligence goes both ways. I think that's a great point that often gets lost as well, right? I mean, it, it, it hurts to, to decline money, but not all money is good money all of the time, right? So due diligence absolutely goes both ways. Couldn't agree more. And there's more money out there than you might think. So don't be afraid. Like, you know, don't say if someone gives you a term sheet and be like, that's it. This is my only term sheet. I'm never going to get another one. I'm taking it. Don't be fearful. Think of it this way. There's trillions of dollars sitting out there to bet on smart people and on good ideas and on good execution. So smart people, good ideas and good execution. All you have to do is go find your share of the trillions of dollars and you can do it. So look, we've spent most of this talking about your journey with Sightline and a lot of the stories and, and experience sharing from that time. But I guess, you know, looking ahead to the future, Omer, like what does the future hold for you for Sightline? I mean, you know, you're, you're still a young guy, a CEO, you got a lot of uh, a runway ahead of you still, but like, how do you think about the future? What are you excited about? And uh, what, what can we expect to see uh, from the outside looking in in the years ahead here? So I can tell you this. I mean, I've never thought about, to me, the term exit, whether used with a capital E or little e is a terrible term. There's also no right or wrong way to do it. And, it, you know, every time someone sells, you're going to, you know, go public, sell, buy. So there's a couple of ways I think about business. Firstly, every business is, if you think about kind of that indefinite time frame, is that there's no right or wrong time to leave the company that you have tried to help build. The Google founders decided early on that they should not be the CEO. They found an amazing CEO and built Google. And uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch did the same thing for 60 years. And you know he never left the media business, right? He never left his business until right now. And founders of WhatsApp sold their business in a handful of years and cashed out with $19 billion. And so the way I see it is there's no right or wrong way. The only way is, is whatever you want to do. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure yet what I want to do. That is the most honest answer. That being said, I think for me, there's at least five years of work to do left at Sightline. You know, what we have built, what we started out to do in 2010, we haven't done yet. And what we started out to do had nothing to do with sports betting or iGaming. All we wanted to do was take cash out of casinos. It made no sense to us that almost all play in casinos in America, it originates in cash and ends in cash. We haven't done that. We pivoted the business. We went into digital. We went into sports betting, went to iGaming. Passport got repealed. We got lucky. You know, lots and lots of things happen in the middle, but I want to try and hit that goal. You may know this, Jesse, already, but the vast majority of gross gaming revenue in America comes from slot machines. For commercial casinos, that's 56%. If you include tribal casinos, you know, you're probably looking at a number of 65 or 70%. It is not sports betting or iGaming. Almost all the play in the, in the million slot machines in America happens in cash. And I want to try and hit that goal. I have been thinking that being said a lot, you know, I talked to David and Anna about this and other folks, you know, on a similar journey. And so to Matt Davey about this, he obviously chose a different path from, you know, through NYX and there's no right or wrong. I think I have an idea of what I'm going to do next then, but you know, I first want to try and hit this goal. I would like to see at least a, a, a half of all play in America converted to cashless. There's a couple hundred billion dollars of volume that is played in cash. If we can 
be a part of a cheap, and we're not going to be, we're not going to be the only company, but there are going to be, you know, I think we're going to get our fair share of that business. Well, you got some work to do and you left us a little bit of a teaser there about what might be next. So we'll circle back with you in a few years to, to see where that leads you. But look, for now, I, I think we've reached the finish line here. As I said, I think we could go on for another hour or two, but I will let you get on with your day and, and let you enjoy what little daylight we have here on the West Coast of Canada this time of year. So, uh, Omer, it's been fantastic to have you join us today. I really appreciate a lot of the insights you shared. I know the audience is going to get a ton of value from it. So thank you so much for joining and look forward to seeing you at the next GeoComply event next year. Thanks a lot, buddy. Really appreciate you. Take care.